Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Morning, mate. Morning, Paul. What's the forum? It's very good. You're sounding very good. I don't know whether to call you uh, Robbie Martin or Georgie Best, but uh, welcome all to a chapter of my life. First time in this series I've been joined by an actor rather than an author. It is Robbie Martin who plays George Best in Hello, Goodbye, Goodbye George, Hello Best. That's the right way round, isn't it? No, no. It's hello, Georgie. Goodbye, best. Ah, well, there you go. <laughs> Making these schoolboy errors makes people sit up, think, and remember more because you always remember from your mistakes. And you could argue that George made a mistake in 1971 when he didn't turn up for the. Well, he missed the train, didn't he? That took the players down to Chelsea. But he'd already arranged an engagement with Sinead O'Connor, so decided to go directly to her house rather than go to Stamford Bridge and join up the boys. But let's talk about the backstory. You and Rafi uh, wrote this. Uh, a few years ago now, didn't you? And and the inspiration was going to the Edinburgh Fringe and watching a ma- one-man show about Frank Carson. So you take yeah. the story. Yeah, that's right. You've got a great memory, Paul. Um, <laughs> that's uh, I'd actually forgotten about that bit myself. Yeah, it was back in um, 2017. Um, I'd gone up the. We'd just finished drama school, and I'd gone up to see an actor that I I know from home, who'd who'd written the, a one-man show about Frank Carson. And uh, it, it was it was fantastic, and it just kind of blew my mind, and that sort of sowed the seeds in my head. Well, who could I play um, from sort of you know real life? And that's you know I'd always had an interest in George, you know, because he's you know obviously such a fascinating character. Um, and I, one of my old like um, football coaches actually used to call me Bestie because he thought I had a similar resemblance to him. So this is that was kind of I kind of it was always sort of there, but I, it just took me to go up to watch that Frank Carson show, which suddenly the, I had that sort of eureka moment where this this could make something really interesting. So that sent me down the tunnel of um, uh, nearly four year now sort of obsession with George Best. And um, so yeah, I've uh, we we just basically started researching it, and then we, as you said, we put on the play a couple of years ago in Edinburgh and we had we had sort of bigger plans for it but then lockdown obviously came so that kind of put that to bed so we but we used that time to sort of do more research and it's it's amazing I don't know I mean how many George books you've read but there's there must be I've got about 30 in in my study of either ones written by him or ones written about him or just that era of United in general um, and we sort of did a bit more research around sort of we went to the British Library and sort of dug up all the newspaper archives from that week. And it was just it was an incredible story. It kind of the more and more you dig, it just it's it's more it's just becomes more incredible that this actually happened. 
and try, I think trying to explain that to sort of present-day football fans, they just can't really get their heads around it either. Um, so, yeah. I don't think present-day football fans can get their heads around what went on in the 70s. I'm an absolute nut obsessed. I don't yeah, know what the it, word is. Someone that's obsessed with some, something. Yeah. That, that is me, an absolute nerd with the 70s. Yeah, it, it was just, there was a, it was interesting because we kind of were able to piece back the kind of the build up to George going missing that weekend. And you, we were sort of looking at the, at the end of 1970 when just before Wilf McGuinness was sacked and, and United really were going down a very bad sort of spell. Like they were close to the being relegated or the relegation zone, you know, the bottom two clubs and at that stage and, you know, they were they were losing matches really, really badly. You know, they had I don't know if you remember, they had a their centre back pairing at the time was um Ian Yuri and Steve James. Sort of they they'd kind of lost Bill Folks and Dave Sadler had an injury. So they had Ian Yuri and Steve James at the back and they were just they were shipping at least two or three goals a game and they were just everyone was beating them and it was amazing you know to just to read the match reports back then and everyone was talking about you know how united had gone from you know two and a half years previously winning the european cup to then becoming the sort of the whipping boys of the first division you know everyone kind of looked forward to playing them and it was just it was a uh, you know it's it's sort of similar to what happened to united after ferguson but in a way it was a bigger fall after busby you know he had just been the man for so long and he tried to sort of use McGuinness as his protege to um you know kind of continue on his legacy but it just completely backfired and it was it wasn't really fair and wealth because he was actually a very good coach he was just the sort of the right man at the wrong time and they just sort of they, they had too many ex- players who had come up through the ranks with him the likes of Bobby Charlton and other ones who just he he just never really seemed to be able to gain the respect of. But I think for United fans, they they you know people don't actually realise people all, all sort of hail Busby as this legend and everyone loved him. But there was actually there's a lot of there's a very toxic atmosphere in the United dressing room back then. You know, people like you know there were the Busby loyal loyalists like. Paddy Crerand and maybe Alex Stepney and people like that. But there were people like maybe Nobby Styles and other guys who who were actually handing in transfer requests. You know, people who were like Brian Kidd handed in a transfer request during that period. A lot of people wanted to get out of Old Trafford. But George was kind of left there thinking, God, there was all these cliques forming and he he couldn't deal with that. You know, he just wanted to win football matches. And this is where his he really started to struggle. You know, everyone says it was it was the the alcohol and everything else and the women, but really where George's troubles started were they were all to do with football. I think that's an absolute fair assessment because George has always maintained that when United were, you know, at the the pump, alcohol wasn't really a problem. It's when United started going down. And he'd always said they replaced players with inferior players. Uh, Bless him, I don't think he ever mentioned them by name because he was too much of a professional and too much of a nice guy for that. But United, in their defence, were trying to recruit. I, I know for a fact that they'd, um, Busby had almost signed Alan Clark uh, from Leicester. Sorry, yeah. sorry from, from Fulham. 
who went to Leicester and then moved on to, to Leeds United after. They were also sniffing around Malcolm McDonald. Uh, they brought yeah. in Ian Story Moore. So, and, and also they'd identified Tony Curry as Bobby Charlton's replacement. So yeah. United were, you know, it, it wasn't as though they were asleep at the wheel, so to speak. They were trying, yeah. but, but these were turbulent times for United only right. a few years after winning the European Cup. And sometimes when a team gets so old and too old together and such great names and great players, it's very difficult replacing and knowing when's the time to bring in the new blood. Yeah, I, I, I think it was it was difficult because also Busby had that loyalty to those guys who had won the European Cup for him. Yep. And he wanted to let them sort of finish their careers on their own terms. Yeah. Um, and there, as you say, there were there were certain players, but I think this is when um, football players transfers had really started to go on the upward scale. You know, and and bus, I mean, people say he was tight, but you know, when he had to spend money, he would have. You know, he spent one hundred and thirty thousand on Dennis Law, um, and he bought you know Paddy Crearns from Celtic. But I think this is when you know there was the likes of I think he, they wanted to get Colin Todd, and they wanted. You know, I think George really wanted Mike England um, from Blackburn and he wanted um, Alan Ball from Everton. Yeah. But this is, I think he, Busby, felt the transfers that were required for those sort of players at sort of the end of the 60s, early 70s were just too high. And the, the problem was everyone had sort of caught up with United with their scouting network. So in, in the 50s, they sort of had that jump over everyone because their scouting network was so much better than everyone else. But then when it got into the late 60s, they kind of... Jimmy Murphy had sort of been sidelined when Wilf McGuinness had come in. Not by Wilf, per se, but he had just sort of began to ease out of the club by other forces. Yeah. And I think that's when they really suffered as well because he was such a big part. You know, everyone talks about Busby, but Jimmy Murphy was as much, you know, a force in United, you know, being the powerhouse that they were. So there was a lot of things going on which within the club which were which was called you know causing them to go on this downward spiral. But I think I think George had just there was just far too much reliance on him at this stage to you know, even for all the things that he did, you know, the likes of Wilf McGuinness and Franco Farrell always said, you know, well they couldn't like they couldn't drop him because when they did drop him, the team suffered. I mean they, they were so heavily reliant on him. And I think this was really you know with the external factors in George's life, it it sort of the, we were the, created this sort of maelstrom of uh, you know identity crisis, nervous breakdown, whatever you want to call it. But this sort of period where Busby takes back over the team, George is just really he's he's really suffering at the moment, but he's not he's not telling anyone, and this is where we get the the build up to him going missing, and for the Chelsea game, because after all said and done. I mean, George was the fifth Beatle. George filled more columns of newspaper space than anybody else. George had model looks. George was the best footballer that not only of these shores uh, seen at that time, but seen since. George was everything that anybody wanted. Everybody wanted to be George Best. Everybody wanted a piece of George Best. But George was a quiet, introvert person, wasn't he? I mean, my, my, my pal Alan Hudson talks a lot about his friend George Best. And, you know, when Chelsea played Manchester United, 
both George loved playing against Chelsea and Chelsea loved playing against George and the, there was speculation around at that time that uh, George was going to join Osgood, Charlie Cook and Alan Hudson at Chelsea. I, I think it would have pushed Dave Sexton over to be quite truthful. <laughs> but, but Alan always says, you know, whenever he was in George's company, you know, George never talked about football. He never talked about himself. He was just the most modest person that that he's that he's met, and and, he's, and that is a, the biggest trait, and um, one of the greatest traits that, that a person can have. Certainly, in Alan Hudson's view, and in mine too, modesty. George had modesty in abundance as well, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, I think he had. I I think that he was intrinsically northern irish in the terms that he always had he was always polite and had manners he was he was very well raised in that sense he had a huge ego but the thing which was okay about that was because his talent probably was even greater than the ego still you know i think that i was always told that you know it's fine to have an ego but you know the ego just can't be bigger than the talent and and certainly in george's case it wasn't but he he just he was a he was a serial winner he he had to win and I think you're right, you know, he didn't like talking about football outside of it, but football was what he lived for. You know, that was that was the thing he loved. And I think once this once this period of United doing so badly, it really affected him because he attributed winning to his, you know, self-worth. And I think he'd started to realise during this period that, you know, without football, what am I? And I think, you know, you mentioned the fifth Beatle there. I think that was something which, you know, as you know, had begun in the in sort of the mid-60s. Yeah. And I think he started to retreat more into that image once the football started going wrong because he thought that could replace the excitement. But yeah. which was, I mean, we all would have done that. Who wouldn't have done that? But it's it just in the long run, it just created this sort of split personality, you know, which we were to see play out over the next 30-odd years where... You could get George, who was just a very nice, well-mannered, funny, charismatic man, or you could get Georgie, who, you know, had could be a bit of a narcissist and could be not a very pleasant person to be around. And I think that's unfortunately the seeds were sown for that at this sort of stage. And I think, yeah, we and you're completely right about what you say about he should have just moved anyone you know if you think of any of the stars today if you know if it, if you know if Juventus suddenly started to, to go downhill Ronaldo would be out of there like a shot mm. but the thing about George was that Man United was his spiritual home Matt Busby was his father figure he when I think one of the big things we realized recently was he'd sort of harbored that feeling of feeling sort of separated from his family whenever he had to move away because obviously back then the club didn't move your family over so and George is very close to his family and his parents and once I think once that he sort of felt slightly abandoned when he first moved to Manchester not through anyone's fault that was just the way it was back then and I think once Matt Busby had stepped down the second time he then felt this the feelings of abandonment that he felt as a 15 year old came flooding back and I think that's what really sort of set this the wheels in motion for this period yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on because famously George, when he first come home, he did go back, didn't he? Because he was homesick. Have you contacted or have the family contacted you about this play that you and Rafi have put together? What's their take if if they have? Yeah, well, yeah, I've I've, I've spoken to um, uh, George's sister Barbara yeah. and and her husband Norman, who 
who run the or have the rights to his to the estate. They are the executors of his estate, and they're they're very supportive of the of the play. And I think their you know their main thing is they want it to be about you know because obviously mental health was was not spoken about back then. You know it was kind of you know it, it just was very. It's not like we are today where you know even the likes of you know the the um euro final last week you know that was such a big thing you know trying to and rightly so you know talking about those guys mental health and all that sort of thing protecting them but there was nothing like that back then mm-hmm. and, pe- and people you know if people want to go i mean they can go and go to the, do the research themselves but if you go and look at the bashing like george would take in the newspapers week in week out i mean you can only imagine the effect that that was having not only on him but his his mum and dad and i think that was something which George felt hugely ashamed about was the effect that the bad press had on his parents and his mum especially. And I, I think that really did. I Well, I've sort of identified this in my own background as well, but we, Protestant shame, you know, you, I think people, especially working class people from Belfast, they were really, they were very proud people and that you know they provided for their families and they you know went to work monday to friday went to church on a sunday very simple hard-working people and i think george became very kind of that was what he was used to growing up and i think the, the more he pulled away from that it kind of really affected him mentally so i think that that that's just this is what the family today really want to try and you know because george still you know, people still do a lot of mudslinging about George even today, about how about the things that he did. And there's there are there are things that happen, especially later on in his life, that are indefensible. But I think we can see, you know, certainly that this this support, you know, emotionally wasn't there when he was going through this real bad period in the early seventies, you know, and and it wasn't say it wasn't really anyone's fault. It's just it wasn't it wasn't really discussed back then. You know, I'm sure even from the other players that you've talked to, they've, you know, had their own problems with addictions and, you know, what do you do after you stop playing football? But unfortunately, that's that's just the way it was. Yeah, spot on. It's uh, when, and, and again, what people have to understand is we're talking about one of the greatest players, again, not just in this country, but in the world. At that time, Pelly described George as the greatest player in the world. George was up there with, if football is a religion, then George was one of the prophets. George Best was an artist whose canvas was the grass. And, and, and George was completely different on the pitch and off the pitch. And you're right, that mental health scenario, it must have been like living in a goldfish bowl for George because the press aren't like what the press are today. The press... Everything that George did, they followed his every move. And you're right, would hammer, would hammer, would hammer. The British press have always liked to do that. Build people up and then smash people down. So what George Best's mental state would have been like around that weekend. Mm. Because it just... Um, He'd been up to, he'd been down to London, hadn't he, for a, an FA inquiry with a situation involving uh, Glyn Pardew, uh, Pardo yeah. in the Manchester Derby. There yeah. was an awful lot going on around that time with George. And when you look at it in, you know, the full picture, not the bits that, because you're right, some people just take them little bits that they want to. But when you look at that full picture, you know, 
every person has that moment where they just want to run and hide and explode. And 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 I'm guessing that George, given that Sinead it was Irish as well, and in London, and and very similar in in um, backgrounds to to George, had already arranged a date with Sinead, but. But, but probably took a lot of solace and comfort in, in both of them loose cannons, if you like, just laying off their troubles to each other over a, over a glass of wine. Yeah, or two. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I think it was, there was, I was actually reading a, a book during lockdown. I, someone had sent me a book on, it was called, I think it was something that it was about loneliness anyway. Mm. But it, I read it, there was a, a description of it that said that loneliness agitates in two directions, um, away from threat and towards intimacy. And if ever you could describe what George Best did, was that's what he did, you know, he wouldn't, he'd avoid confrontation and he, and he wanted intimacy with someone. He, not necessarily, I don't mean per, say sexual, but Absolutely. he just wanted, just wanted someone to talk to or yeah. try and open up with. Um, and I think that's what Sinead represented at that time was, and it was, as you say, it was a, it was a real crazy, crazy week. And in, in fact, that the previous year had been very, you know, he had, he had done some things which he was really blasted in the in the press for, such as he th- he had he had knocked the ball out of a referee's hand during a League Cup semi final. He'd thrown mud at a referee during an Ireland Scotland game, and he'd had another sort of booking offence which had led to um as you say the FA disciplinary hearing. But actually the the Glen was incident wasn't it was he actually got off on that because they'd they'd had the film footage of it and they'd shown that it actually was an accident so but he'd as you say he'd turned up it it's he'd due he'd due to be i think it was monday the maybe the 5th of january he'd due he was due at this um it was monday the 4th he was due at this fa disciplinary hearing and he had been out the night before and busby had turned up at lancaster gate but no george and everyone's wondering where he is, and they, I think they blamed fog because apparently it was a foggy morning. I mean, this is like this is, it was, I mean, it's hilarious reading through these newspaper articles, and and so apparently George's business associate Malcolm Mooney had got him on a later train, and so he turned up five hours late, and I think this was in one of the books as well. Apparently he was going up in the elevator, and he was he was sick in front of Busby in the elevator just before they were about to go in. And I think Busby just didn't know what to do. And George, obviously, George is hugely embarrassed. And they actually had managed to get off relatively scot-free in the hearing. He he got a six-week um, suspended sentence, providing he didn't have another booking offence within the next year. So they think they'd got off. They were quite happy with that outcome. But then the, the, the following, the next night, the Tuesday, they had an FA Cup replay against Middlesbrough. And you can actually, you can watch this on YouTube. It's on a snow-covered pitch. Um, Middlesbrough at this time were in the second division um, and they, they won the replay 2-1 and so that was kind of United's last chance of silverware that season because they were out of contention for the league and everything um, so that had and this was sort of one of Buzz, this Buzz's maybe second game back in charge so the club were sort of at a real down here and this is where George goes missing from training for the rest of that week before the Chelsea game and he doesn't turn up for the train on Friday lunchtime to go down to London. And this is where it gets even funny. This is like a scene out of a film. He arrived at um, Manchester Airport, 
got a flight a BEA British European Airways for anyone who remembers them down to Heathrow and to avoid getting past the journalists they disguised him as an air steward they put him in a flat cap bunged him in the van at Heathrow drove him past the journalist to go to the Euston Square Hotel in London and so George comes even though and Busby by the way has already sent a telegram to George's house telling him not to come but George sort of sort of apparently didn't get it and come down anyway. And so George arrives. And as you can imagine, in the lobby, the man, the man United team, I think, are sitting around having afternoon tea. And George comes in, and you could probably hear a pin drop. And Busby's just sort of giving him the eyes from across the room and gives him a feel like apparently the dressing down was, you know, he just Busby had just been pushed too far. And he really told George that he was to get back up to Manchester and, you know, they would deal with the matter next week. And, well, of course, what did George do? He didn't go back up to Manchester and do what he was told. He made the short, probably half-hour walk from Euston Hotel to to Islington, um, sort of just out the Regent's Canal, to go to Sinead's flat, as you say, when he was due to meet her for a date the following day after the Chelsea game, but he showed up a, a day early. And that was, yeah, sort of where, where our play begins is George turning up. Now... They went out, didn't they, to a restaurant? And is that how they were spotted when they went back to Sinead's flat? Because on the Sunday morning, the the uh, every person with a camera and a, and a yeah. pen was camped outside her flat. And at the end of the day, I mean, he's not a mass murderer. He's well, not committed any crime. Well, he just missed a game of football this, against Chelsea. This is where there, I think there's conflicting yeah. evidence on how they find out he was there. Something which I found out, or which I really realised working with other people on this project um, over lockdown, was actually how much George tried to use the press at times. And I think this is the first time really he tried to use the press against Busby. So I don't know if he planned to create this standoff with Busby and he wanted the journalist to sort of create this media siege in, in order to bite back against Busby but because he was there was in, there was little snippets of things that Sinead was going because she was going down to the doorstep and getting you know a pint of milk and newspapers or whatever and she was getting little quotes but George never really came down and spoke to the press it was like it was like he wanted to create this like and George was he was very clever like that he knew how to play the media but the only person who knew how to play the media better than him was Busby yeah and I think he wanted, he was doing it so Busby would come down and forgive him. He wanted someone to put an arm around him, but he just went to, like George, he just, there was a, a really good quote that from John Roberts, who we interviewed, who was George's ghostwriter, and he said, you know, George would go through these periods where he'd, let, he'd bottle things up and bottle things up, and then he would make this real erratic decision without consulting anyone, and I think that was one of the things that happened this weekend. So I don't know whether he let the media know he was there. I can't say for certain, but I wouldn't be surprised because I think he wanted he wanted Busby to realise how how badly he was hurting and how how much the team's form was was you know getting you know getting on him on top of him. So um, yeah, it, it it's it, it's a it's a sad thing, but ultimately. George was all the snippets that George was sending out to the press that weekend was saying that all his problems were to do with football, and then of course Busby was saying, "Well, I don't know. They're they're nothing to do with football. You know, they're, they're, it must be a personal thing." And 
eventually George it, it got as I think you probably know it got to such a stage at the weekend that on the Monday morning the um the police had to be called because they were just I mean this this is if you can like imagine back then they they had outside broadcast trucks there and that yeah. was a that was like a big deal back then you know usually you could would just get a few reporters with pens and papers but this was like there was, there was news crews there was tv crews that was a huge deal you know obviously today it's you know part and parcel but back then that was like that was only for <laughs> royal weddings or something you got those sorts of things and so and you, you can just imagine the 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 chaos that the you know the police eventually had to, had to be called and it was actually but it was actually the police because they had gone up the check on George and they probably just wanted to see who he was with or you know whatever and then they came back down and they left the the front door to the building open they had left it sort of ajar and all the school kids were there on the Monday and they'd broken in and then all, of course all the journalists followed through so if you can imagine I've actually been in the building there's this sort of stairwell. And there was apparently a huge, I mean, there's a huge crush. There was, you know, kids caught in this. And eventually the, the door to the flat just burst open because of this crush. So, and you can, and then there's just George there with Sinead. And, you know, it's just, it's absolute pandemonium. So eventually George, he he didn't get the outcome that he wanted. He 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 had to eventually again be rescued by his business partner, Malcolm Mooney, who had to take him back up to Manchester. And eventually George just conceded the busby and just said yeah it's it's my fault my my problems you know it's a their personal problems they're nothing to do with football which of course was a complete lie they were all to do with football but he had to do what busby he had to you know to apologize to busby do in order to be forgiven and it was it was just a real bad situation and i think that meeting which um which took place between george and busby i think was really well um talked about actually in, in I'm not sure if you read about or listened to your interview with Wayne Barton, but he talked a lot about that meeting. And I think, I think George really broke down. And but the problem was that I don't think they still didn't address the the problems. And what we were to go on seeing were the repeat of the same things again and again. And it was just it was just incredibly sad because you know I. I George is obviously still revered by Man United fans today, but I mean, this is all happening when he's only 24, and you just think it was just—it was such a bad shame that the problems were just never really sorted out. It's so quite an incredible story. How long does your play go on for? Because there's an awful lot to put in there. Do you have all the school kids on the stairs as well? No, no, we, we didn't have the budget for that. Well, I think. <laughs> Hopefully, maybe one day we think we might get a we might get a film version of it done, but yeah. I don't. I, that's outside of my hands, sort of thing. But yeah, the the play basically only looks at what goes on between George and Sinead inside the flat, and it's lucky we've we've got lots of archive footage, so we you can see the the press and everything, and the journalists outside, you know, doing the broadcast. So it does it it sort of does bring it to life a bit. Um. So yeah, we don't. Unfortunately, we don't have anyone to play Busby or anything. Just just because, and it's difficult because George Busby is sort of such a big part of the story. But yeah. it, it's actually what goes on between. It, you know, it's it's basically the in in the flat. It's George trying to be honest. You know, I think that was always George's biggest drawback was that he couldn't be honest with other people. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, he couldn't he couldn't open up. He couldn't tell people. He always tried to deflect. You know, even when you look at interviews and even the people that he was close to like Michael Parkinson he couldn't you know when he was asked you know the famous where did it all go wrong he had to tell the story about 
the hotel and the money and the bellboy you know he couldn't he could never admit that actually he didn't he wasn't really happy with his career he did he did you know only really have half a career and it's an and it's incredibly sad that's why i think people find george best endlessly fascinating is because he was like this this greek mythological character you know he was you know it was almost like he knew the path that he was going down and he was sort of okay with that but what we were left with was kind of you know a very a very tragic story but it's as you say it's still amazing that he's still considered one of the greatest players of all time really only sort of having a career up until the age of sort of 24 25 it is unbelievable and I just think it's testament to what an absolutely fantastic talent George Best was. George Best's legacy will live forever and I think it's fantastic that you are doing plays like this and other people are writing books like Warren's, um, Wayne's wrote the book uh, about George Best. There's autobiographies, there's endless scores of reels of information about George and George's family have got the official George Best Facebook page, Twitter, etc. So long may that continue because with players like George, they should never be forgotten because what they gave us was special. Okay, fair play. It's a shame that it didn't go on for longer, but the little bit that George gave us was so much more greater than most football players that we've ever seen in all of their entire careers. So thank you, uh, Robbie, and thank you, thank you, George, for all those wonderful memories. Where can people hook up with you, Robbie, and how can people see this play? How long is the play running for? And uh, Guillaume Balagay has done a bit of retweeting as well. Where does that yeah. connection come from with Guillaume? Because he's quite, oh. a, quite a star in his own right. Yeah. Yeah, he he randomly came to see the play and we did it in Edinburgh and he was very like he he, he tweeted about it afterwards. I never I've never actually met him face to face, but we sort of kept in touch since then and he's very nice to do a, a promotional tweet. But yeah, he I think he he sort of appreciated the fact that I think everyone knows about the football with George Best, but what I think what we were trying to show is more the more human side. Yeah. You know, that that vulnerability because everyone knows the quotes, the you know, the Miss Worlds, the given up booze for 20 minutes and you know it's been the worst 20 minutes of my life everyone knows all that but what they don't know is what George Best actually felt underneath and I think that's what we're trying to say with this with this play um so yeah he 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 was very nice in giving us um that um help but uh the um the play runs sorry from the 27th of July to the 5th of August in it's in the Isle of Dogs in London sort of near Canary Wharf um, so all the, all the details are on if you on my Twitter um, it's Robbie Three Martin or we have a, fa- a Facebook group called Hello Georgie Goodbye Best as well. Um, but also excitingly for people who aren't able to get down to see the show, we're getting um, a film crew in one day and we're gonna we're gonna shoot a couple of runs of the play and edit it together and then do a sort of a live stream. So we'll be able to sort of broadcast the play to people you know, across the UK or and the world here, because we've had a lot of interest and people, you know, wanting to see this. So hopefully we'll be able to get it. That's one of the sort of the benefits of lockdown that theatres had to sort of adapt and try in other ways of getting shows out the audience. So this is something we're doing. So hopefully more people can see the play. Now, will the play be going elsewhere after the Isle of Dogs? Because it is a must-see play. 
Are you going to yeah. be coming to Birmingham, to Manchester, b- back over yeah. to where uh, Belfast? Yeah. Everybody wants a piece of George, surely. Yeah, I think definitely. Well, Manchester being George's spiritual home, yeah. I think I'd really like to do to do one up there. It's just, it's, it's. I guess there's just so much uncertainty at the minute. I mean, with with COVID and everything. I mean, we've even really struggled to like get the play on for this run. So I think we'll we'll probably do one step at a time but yeah i think ideally if 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 the appetite's there for it we'd love to do it and i think it's it's a story which you know will, will not just resonate with with football people it's just it's really more more about life than about football and about you know overcoming trying to overcome adversity which everyone can sort of relate to and and how's Rafi finally? He's, how, how's her side with uh, being Sinead Kuzak? How's, how's the young lady doing? Uh, yeah, she's actually just training here. She's doing a kettlebell workout. So she's, doing a what? She's, just, she's doing a kettlebell <laughs> workout here in front of me. Kettlebells? Um, what, what's that mean, making your coffee? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, jo, jo, I'll, I'll bring her out here and she can answer for herself. Okay. Rafi? Paul wants to know about how you're finding playing Sinead. Oh, hello. Hi, Hi Rafi. How are you? What's this kettlebell workout that you're doing as well, by the way? Yeah, I don't know why I've chosen to do it on such a hot day, but there you go. Um, so, Sinead, it's uh, really interesting to play, this time around especially, because I think we've delved a lot deeper into... Um, her backstory and this amazing kind of link between her and George and the way they end up in this flat together this weekend and the sort of stakes um, for both of them. Um, I guess uh, her story sort of parallels his, it kind of acts in tandem, but the different way you could sort of, when high pressure sort of happens, that um, the event in the flat is really bad. Um, but she sort of chooses to take it one way. But George, being the person that he was, sort of can't help himself uh, take it to an even worse place in his life, really. And I'm guessing uh, you, you found it really easy working <laughs> working with Robbie as well, because as those two only spent the weekend in the flat, you guys are all the all the time in the <laughs> same flat, aren't you? <laughs> Especially after lockdown. And <laughs> um, no, it is really it's a pleasure to work with him. He's you know so capable and a really generous actor. So I do think you know people say to us often, oh, don't you bicker or don't you quarrel if you're you're working together all the time, but. I really think if you're in something creative and you have that opportunity to do that with people close to you, then there's nothing quite like being on stage with them. Absolutely. And you co-wrote that as well with uh, with Robbie, didn't you? So it's, it's it's your work as much as it's Robbie's. Yeah, although he's, you know, he's the George Best fanatic. <laughs> but of course, he's, he looks like George as well. Do you look like Sinead? Um, when she was younger, a, yeah. a fair, not, not as much as Robbie looks like George. Yeah, he's a ringer, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you lucky, lucky girl. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, you better go back to your kettlebell ringing or whatever. What actually is it? What 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 yeah, is that? Workout, you know, like kettlebells, like the weights. Oh right. Oh okay. Yeah. Bell ringing. <laughs> okay. It sounds like fantastic fun, but not as much fun as the uh, the stage. Hello, Georgie. Goodbye, best. Thank you, Rafi. Could you just put Thanks. Robbie back on? I'll just say ta to Robbie as well. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Paul. Hey, mate. She really sounded out of breath there, didn't she? You're working her hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 
the heat. It's the heat. Uh, it kills you, don't it? It absolutely yeah. kills you. So, Robbie, can I thank you so much? All the very, very best. I'll be retweeting and sharing, and uh, this podcast will be up shortly. Finally, is there anything else that you have to add as either Robbie or as George? Um, no, I, th- I think we've, 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 we've more, more or less covered all bases, um, haven't we? Yeah, so, yeah absolutely. Um, but, yeah, I should say, like... Um, yeah, any anyone with any sort of mild interest in in football or anything, you know, there'll be there'll be and there'll be there there are a few sort of surprises that I don't think even the most fanatic of George Best people will not expect to come up in this in this performance in this play. So, yeah, and as I say, we'll be able to hopefully as well sort of hopefully around mid August we'll have a a streamed version of the play, so we'll be able to get get it out to a wider a wider audience brilliant can i wish you and rafi all the very best going forward and thank you so much time again robbie for your time sir and good luck with everything that you do not just this play but everything for the future as well and please keep in touch because uh, we'll do a few more podcasts to help and support you guys going forward oh brilliant yeah no, it's been a pleasure thanks so much for your time cheers pal and thanks for listening guys that out of it Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.